This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. She went slowly over Theobald's road, still holding off the moment of her return, wondering again whether it was not love she had lost so much as a modern form of respectability, whether it was not contempt and ostracism she feared, as in the novels of Flaubert and Tolstoy. But pity, to be the object of general pity, was also a form of social death. The 19th century was closer than most women thought. To be caught out in acting her part in a cliché showed poor taste rather than a moral lapse. Restless husband in one last throw, brave wife maintaining her dignity, younger woman remote and blameless. And she had thought her acting days ended on a summer lawn just before she fell in love. The thought-provoking words of English novelist Ian McCune from his most recent book, The Children Act, which tells the story of Fiona May, a leading High Court judge presiding over the family court. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Do we underestimate the capabilities of children? On this week's show, author and literary critic Sophia Hillen explores the creative imagination of Bridget Arthur, the curious five-year-old, at the centre of her latest novel, The Friday Tree. And does Ian McCune's interest in the human mind make him a scientist? Dr Sebastian Groves from the University of Roehampton talks atheism and feminism in the works of Ian McCune. This is a show about rationality and imagination, hope and wonder, craft and the vulnerable experiences in everyday life. But first, a story of innocence in post-war Belfast. Sophia Hillen is a Belfast-born writer and literary critic and an internationally recognised expert on the writings of Irish novelist and short story writer Michael McLafferty. Sophia started her working life as an English teacher in Kerrysford in Dublin where Seamus Heaney was her tutor, friend and mentor. After completing a PhD in Irish literature, Sophia returned to Belfast and became the first woman director of the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University. Her notable publications include three books on the life and writings of Michael McLafferty, The Edge of Dark, In Quiet Places and Silk and Twine, and the popular Mary Lou and Cass, Jane Austen's nieces, in Ireland. Sophia's latest book, The Friday Tree, is her first book of fiction and offers the reader a unique and intimate portrayal of family life in Belfast in the early 1950s. What's interesting about this story is the fact that it challenges the standard assumption that Belfast was a peaceful and sectarian free city to live in in the early 1950s. 
Well, late last week, I caught up with Sophia on one of her many trips to Dublin. We first started chatting about the catastrophic bombing of Belfast during World War II. Let's take a listen. It was something that we were all conscious of. I would have been the same age as Bridget, though I'm not Bridget. And we were conscious, for example, that the evidence of the Blitz that took place in 1941 was everywhere in the town. Our parents would park their cars in bomb sites. And in fact, when I went to school, which I did in 1955, one of, one of my friends in class and I, we had a plan to deal with the Germans if they came back. So convinced were we, although we hadn't been alive during the war, so convinced were we that this trauma, as you call it, we didn't think of it as trauma, but this horror, this German bombing would happen again, that we had a plan. It was a very simple plan. We were going to punch them on the nose. <laughs> and did people talk about it? Like, would if your parents or your aunts and uncles or neighbours, what was said and what was unsaid? What was said was how dreadful it was. People told you things when during the Blitz we hid under the table. It, we had visions of everybody under the table and people talked about how dreadful it was, how the sky was lit up at night and how afraid they were. And they also talked about, and you hear about the, the spirit of, of the London Blitz, but people talked about how, very interestingly, sectarian differences disappeared in Belfast during the Blitz. People forgot how angry they were with one another for being of different religion and simply banded together. Get a very good example of that in Michael McLaverty's journals book I did called In Quiet Places, he talked about standing at a railway station thinking they were about to be bombed and how everybody huddled together and how everybody looked out for one another and talked about an old man saying, we can take it. So there was that sense, was almost a pride in having survived the war and in not having escaped it. It was a strange thing. It wasn't that they were glad to have been in the war, but they felt proud to have survived it. Now, Sophia, there's a very interesting chapter in the book about the lead character who starts school. Bridget starts school at five years of age and you write exquisitely about her experience in her first few days of school. But there's a very strong feeling of loneliness and removed from her mother. She's not screaming her head off and she's very much, she's keeping it together. But how her mum walks away and barely waves back. It's very different to how we navigate child psychology these days. Yes, I mean, that's that certain. I was talking about this to somebody just a few days ago. In those days, we didn't have playgroups and we didn't have gentle introductions. You went from being at home to being at school. Now, I gather from various people, if you were fortunate enough to live in the countryside, it was different. But in the town, like Bridget, I was in a, a classroom of 50 children and you had to sink or swim. It was it, it was very frightening. And we did really have our names written on pink cards with green ribbon. And I know this is so because to the end of her life, my mother kept mine. I remember her walking away. She had herself been a school teacher. She didn't teach then because married women weren't allowed to teach after they married. But no one expected it to be easy for us. Rather, again, in that spirit of the Blitz, we were meant to be little soldiers and, you know, just get on with it. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying. So it was more hard-loving, tough parental style those days? Well, I suppose, really, we were very happy at home. I could see no good reason to leave it. And I didn't want to go. I would have given anything not to go. And I became an expert at finding reasons not to go. You know, sudden temperatures and slight colds that might turn into something else. I don't even know if it was tough. No one even thought about it. Any more than we thought about being lined up to be given polio injections and all sorts of things, which were terrifying too. And nobody said, no, this might hurt a little bit or this might be too pleasant. You just were lined up and a dirty great needle was stuck into your... And if you cried, you were told, you're such a coward. So it was, it was like that, yeah. 
Now, I don't want to put any spoilers on the Friday tree for anyone who's about to read it, but there's a very interesting section of the book where we get a flavour for the sectarian violence that is yet to really palpably hit Belfast. Can you talk to me a little bit about this? Because I said the novel set in 1955. The troubles really kicked off in the late 60s, obviously from 1968 on. But down there somewhere, there's an undercurrent of unease, people questioning people, who's hanging out with who, who's doing what, lots of gesturing that is political, but you're not quite sure. So this is all seen through the eyes of a five-year-old, your mm-hmm. central character, mm-hmm. Bridget. I tried to reflect what I felt. There tends to be an opinion that nothing was happening in the 50s. People say that about all of Ireland, but a great deal was happening. And it didn't all just explode in 1968, as we know. It was all ready to go. It was like something like a blue touch paper that somebody just had to set a match to. And I do remember this. I do remember the things that weren't said, things you weren't allowed to mention, the questions you weren't allowed to ask. And it is true that, as happens to a character in the novel, two of my brothers were hit with bricks, wearing their school uniforms and walking across the wrong part of the town in the mid-50s. So it was something I do remember being very uh, puzzled by why this happened. And I do remember reading, there was a word that I would read in actually my brother's comics and it was protestant. And I thought that was a very interesting word, what a protestant was. I didn't know it was the same thing as what I thought of as a produsan. So I gave that to Bridget and being baffled by this, what did it mean to be a Catholic or, or a produsan? I, I didn't get it. And I think we didn't as children, but we learned it. We learned, as Seamus Heaney said, that whatever you say, you say nothing. You learned what not to say. And you learned to be very, very careful. You watched your parents' conversations stopping or things turned off on television that were unsuitable. So you knew there was something. You would hear words like orange men or you would hear a bombing campaign. But if you ask questions about it, you were told, that's, listen, it's nothing to concern you. That's about politics and you don't need to worry about that. Go off and play. And through Bridget, we, she's five years of age, your, mm. your central character, and we see Belfast through her eyes mm. and how she navigates the ups and downs of her life. But I'm wondering, do we actually forget how shrewd a five-year-old can be and what they pick up on? Because Bridget sees a lot, misinterprets a lot, but at the same time, she's asking a lot of questions and observing a lot of interesting stuff. So I'm wondering, do we underestimate children? And what was that like, writing and developing a plot through the eyes of a five-year-old? Well, because I was five in 1955, I feel I'm on sure ground. And one or two people have said to me, and some reviewers have said, well, a five-year-old wouldn't be able to think like that. But I know a five-year-old thinks like that because I did. And quite a few of the questions that she has were the questions that my siblings and I and my friends all had. And the frustration of not being told... I mean, one of the things that really affected me, and it did happen to me, and I gave it to Bridget, was being terribly proud of something I'd written at school. And I saw these two teachers at the top laughing, they're falling about the place laughing. I was very, very, I was very affronted by that. And you don't think a five-year-old would be affronted, but I was. Also was affronted by the fact that you weren't necessarily told the truth, that you couldn't always rely on adults. And when they did say things like, in the longer day, or we'll see, or perhaps later, it quite often meant, no. That's just not happening. And you would wonder why they didn't say, no, that's not happening. But I didn't know why children were expected not to understand and why questions weren't answered. And I wanted to get that sense of frustration because I do think, yes, I think we underestimate children. I think children are absorbing all the time and that those questions require to be answered as best we can, whatever they may be. 
But the role of the parent then in filtering what information or just being honest to a child, how much information do you think you can actually give to a child? Well, that's a very hard one. And I wasn't very good at it myself as a parent. It's very easy for me now that my children are grown up to say, yes, we should be much more honest. It is very hard because you're treading a fine line. And I seem to be contradicting myself now because I do think children's questions should be answered. But we do want to protect them. We do want to protect them. I can remember one my youngest brother one time asking me, <laughs> what was a brothel? And I remember lying in my teeth and saying, it's a soup kitchen for the poor and needy. Because I didn't know how to tell them. You know, so I, I, I think we do tread a fine line. We must try to answer their questions as best we can without shattering their innocence. But how precisely we do that, Susan, I haven't worked out yet. All I wanted to convey in the Friday Tree was that there was so much that they really needed to understand to be able to negotiate this rather dangerous world. They needed to know more than they were told. And they weren't told it. And they learned it the hard way. Earlier you said to me that you wrote your brother into this book. And I know your your brother died quite tragically very young. Can you tell me what that was like, bringing your brother in, and how challenging that must have been? He's my eldest brother. I had three brothers. And the eldest one, he wasn't very young. He was 42. And he was killed very tragically in a car accident. It was not his fault. Bringing him in, it was 